Hello everyone, I'm just waiting for you all to come on through as you're joining um, slowly, trickling on through. Thank you all for joining promptly. We will get going very shortly because we have a, a jam-packed hour ahead. Um, just while you're joining us, just to let you know, this is the fourth of our hour-long GP updates. You can find them all on the Wessex LMC's website and the WegPet website. We've got more to come in the new year. Um, this particular session is being recorded, so you will be able to watch it back if you miss anything. And also you'll be able to access the slides after. You'll see on screen there the link which you need. Um, the Q&A function will be used today, so if you have any questions throughout the session, please do type those into the Q&A. We will review them as we go along. And your facilitator today is Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence Brad, who I will hand over to now, and Lawrence will tell you a little bit more about the content. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you. Um, so it's as it says on the tin there, um, I'm a GP in Bournemouth and the first 30 minutes is really just to update us about steroids, um, in particular in the context of the National Patient Safety Alert for steroid emergency cards. Who really needs it is my first question because we get a lot of pop-up alerts now on our systems and it can be a bit confusing. The second sort of bit I wanted to find out about is why w do we need to know more about sick day rules when we prescribe steroids to patients so we don't actually end up with them in an emergency situation anyway. Um, and I also wanted just to get a few suggestions how between now and May, when as GPs we're supposed to show we can implement this patient safety alert, we can just find some fairly stress-free ways of coping with this without an additional burden of work, perhaps until an NHS digital solution comes on and helps us with that. And last but not least, I just wanted to get an update on prescribing steroids during the COVID pandemic, because I think there are some myths and confusion about whether, whether we should be upping or downing doses of steroids. So to try and get this information, we've got Helen Simpson, who's a consultant endocrinologist at University College Hospital London. And she's very much the lead clinician with the Royal College of Physicians on their patient safety committee doing a lot of this work. And just to put a sort of primary care context on it, there's Steve Williams, who's a senior clinical pharmacist uh, in our Bournemouth and Pool Bay um, primary care network. Um, and I think that's just a nice balance just to try and make sure we feel we've got a manageable understanding of this area and how we go about it. So I'll just hand it straight over to Helen and her slides. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Sorry, I look like I'm in a call centre. That's the joy of the NHS ivory tower for you. And sorry, Steve, I didn't include you on my first slide. So next slide, please. So I've got some clinical cases and thank you. And as I say, I'm very much hospital based. So, so apologies if I, if I rush things um, from trying to think of your perspective. So this is just really to highlight um, a month's worth of cases that I've seen literally in the last month at UCLH around adrenal insufficiency. So this was a 76 year old lady who'd been having intra-articular steroids. Can you see my pointer if you just nod? If you can see it, can you see my pointer? No one's nodding, anyway. So she's been having intra-articular steroids about two to four times a year with the last one 12 months prior to me meeting her in clinic, which was a few months before this operation. Because she had asthma, she'd also been put on high dose ster inhaled steroids. And she basically had two perioperative adrenal crises. And you can see here, if you just look at the gray, you'll see it drops down. And for this operation, she was given six milligrams IV of dexamethasone, which um, anesthetists are giving as an antiemetic. And you can see then her blood pressure picked up. Her cortisol was measured at 21, but no action was taken. Um, then she had a second operation. And you can see here again, the gray, the blood pressure drops. She was given metaraminol. Um, and she then required noradrenaline postoperatively as her blood pressure didn't pick up. Just then the cortisol was checked again and they looked and they saw there was a 21 and a 99, so these are both low. We were called, started on hydrocortisone, I'm glad to say the patient's absolutely fine. But you can see here the stress of the operation on somebody who was, had a suppressed axis was fine for day-to-day -day life, but the stress of a surgery, you can see it had a significant effect. Um, next slide, please. I feel like, who is it? Chris Whitty who went next slide, or is it Van Tam? He's my current favourite. This is another case that might come to see you in primary care. So this is a 58-year-old lady with ovarian cancer. She had a left adrenalectomy for metastatic disease, um, and then she had a right adrenal metastasis that has been followed um, radiologically. She was unwell for over six months. She was turned away from her local hospital when she went in feeling very unwell, and was admitted to UCLH with vomiting and adrenal crisis. No one had looked at her cortisol at all. Her sodium was 126. 9M cortisol we see here was undetectable at 17. She's given me permission to share this. I spoke with her yesterday in clinic. 
um, pigmented, she's a white Caucasian lady, you can see how pigmented she is. So she was treated in the usual way for a crisis with IV hydrocortisone, and we've now got her an oral hydrocortisone standard replacement dose of 10, 5 and 5, and a small dose of fludrocortisone. The next slide, please. This is another, I've had two of these in the same week from oncology. So this is a dexamethasone used in oncology anti-sickness regimens. And don't worry, I'll be speaking with them as well. Um, and she, she had four days every three weeks of high-dose dexamethasone. So 10 milligrams IV for this one, and then six milligrams orally for three days thereafter. Wasn't feeling very well about a couple of weeks later. And you can see here, uh, over two weeks, so the 16th of October had a cortisol of 24, cortisol 85, so had HPA axis suppression that took um, about three weeks to, to wear off after dexamethasone. So we're now giving her hydrocortisone in between her courses of dexamethasone. Next slide, please. And this one, uh, my registrar did a fantastic bit of detective work. 65-year-old um, gentleman referred with a three centimeter adrenal nodule for endocrine workup. As part of routine investigations of, of this, um, his cortisol was 29, which is low. And he was advised to come to the emergency department because it, it didn't make sense, wanted to see if he was ill. And he was feeling very tired. He'd lost the stone in weight and some mild stomach symptoms. Repeat cortisol showed 39 and he confirmed adrenal insufficiency. So we started on hydrocortisone, but we didn't know the cause. Um, and as I say, she did great detective work because her family, his family went hunting around his house and you can see these that were prescribed for pruritus ani. So he had these two um, steroid preparations which were absorbed rectally causing HPA axis suppression. And again, he's safe and he's on steroids. Next slide, please. So I think you can see the sort of scale of the issue really that I think we're facing in our different environments and all of us go a little bit pale. The anaesthetists were pale this morning. I feel a little bit pale. I'm sure you guys are feeling slightly anxious in the middle of COVID as well, um, thinking about this. Just for summary, and I won't go through this in big detail, I'll send the PDF of the slides. This is just to show really the causes of adrenal insufficiency. So it's not just Addison's disease. Um, there's we obviously split it into primary, essentially, and secondary. And primary have Addison's, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and then these other things causing bilateral issues, such as bilateral adrenal hemorrhage, um, metastases, lymphoma, TB, and bilateral adrenalectomy. Adrenal hemorrhage is probably commoner than you think, but again, I acknowledge that these are quite rare. Pituitary tumours, surgery, in irradiation, hypothalamic tumours, again, there's a structural issue there, as you might imagine. And I think really what we're focusing on, in a way, practically speaking today, is exogenous steroids for any reason. So oral, inhaled, topical, intra-articular. And also the thing that um, is the drugs inhibiting cortisol clearance. So there's antifungals, particularly itraconazole, uh, antiretrovirals, which we see a lot of around here. And what these do is they delay cortisol clearance from the steroid drug a patient may be on. So this is particularly eye drops or um, nasal drops, but it makes the cortisol clearance reduced. So there's a very high dose, enough again to suppress the axis from drugs that you really wouldn't think normally would. And then when the steroids drop, say their sniffy noses from the allergy get better, they get an adrenal crisis or they can't amount, they can't amount of appropriate response for something like an operation or an intercurrent illness. Uh, next slide, please. Um, being an endocrinologist, I have to talk about an axis, and this is just to remind you all about uh, spend my day doing. We have the CRH and the hypothalamus acting on the pituitary to make ACTH, acting on the adrenals to make cortisol. And this is where the exogenous steroids are acting. They're acting basically just as steroid, suppressing the CRH and ACTH response. So the adrenals can't produce cortisol either day to day or in a stressful situation. Uh, next slide, please. Oh God, have we got a poll? Do I need to stop for a poll? No. Yeah. I mean, what we were going to—the the point was—we just wanted to just get this idea that if people were aware of this um, national oh, patient safety oh. alert, and just to see if they could. Uh, so I don't know if, if Joanna can just do it, and it's really just to say—is—is is it there? And it's just really just to say, if you're a GP, kind of before we had that little bit from Helen, it's just would you be prepared just to say do you feel confident about this thing that's popping up on our screens all the time or do you find it quite difficult to know how to interpret it um and there you go so there's a few there's a few well there's one reply so far but it's really just to see if we feel we own this as gps and if we feel confident And we, 
thought Helen can take this back to her the national to the patient safety committee because it's really important that they remember GPs in this, um, and and it, um, you know very kindly we can do, we can use these numbers just as a very little just a sense check to take back um, to the College of Physicians as well. It's really helpful. Thank you. I mean, that's a handful, so we won't waste time or hold any more time up on that. So we'll let Helen get back to, um, to her talk. Surprised she could stop me in full flow. Well done. <laughs> Sorry, I t I'm terrible at jokes on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> so, so, Joanna, if you minimise, is that, can we just minimise that now and then um, just get back to let Helen go back onto her slides? Yeah, that's all removed. If uh, it's still showing on your screen, you just need to click the little close button. Oh, okay, that's fine. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So, in terms of I'm trying to look at this in more detail, because uh, I'll show you a reference in a little bit, the literature doesn't help us basically very much because there's this lovely review here. And it basically states that there's no administration form, dosing, treatment duration, or underlying disease for which adrenal insufficiency can be excluded with certainty. Although higher doses and longer use give the highest risk. So it's exactly really what we don't want to hear. Uh, and I've just reviewed another paper by the same, a similar group, not exactly the same, basically kind of saying we need to get more information as an endocrine community. You know, all, we, we need better data so we can better advise. Next slide, please. This is the data from this paper, and you'll see here on oral prednisolone, when they tested this with the synaclin test, you can see there's 40 to 90% of patients had HPA axis suppression from oral steroids. And inhaled steroids is around 11%. Locally, my respiratory colleagues, I haven't seen all the data, they quote between 10 to 20% um, of HPA axis suppression on high-dose steroids. And then on retesting, about 25% of this oral group still had HPA axis suppression. This is the one that frightens me the most, intra-articular injections, because we don't know where or when people are getting these injections. I was on a call with MSOs and physios yesterday, and you know, people be getting injections all over the place that may not be documented. And this was done about a month after the injection. So, so this is something pragmatic. We need to think of a solution. And it adds up with multiple routes. So I think what happened in the first lady, it wasn't, it maybe just wasn't just the intra-articular injection, it was the fact she had that and then was on high dose inhaled steroids, and that's what tipped her into the the um you know, the crisis state for her surgery. Uh, next slide, please. Just as cheap and cheerful, um, and again, I don't know if this is in quite the right place, but if you're ever worried, you know, the recommendation I'd say is just do a 9am cortisol. You know, don't have to worry about snacks. And if you're seeing someone in clinic in, or, or practice and you're really not sure, I've put ACTA, EDTA on, on ice, because again, in primary care, I completely see this isn't realistic. But, you know, I was speaking to surgeons earlier, that's probably equally not realistic. But um, if, if, and if anyone was had a hundred, of or less than a hundred at any point, just get them on some hydrocortisone and refer urgently to endocrinology. So that's, that's maybe your red flag safety thing, if, if that's helpful. Uh, next slide. In terms of crisis, I, I was trying to look at, there isn't anything quite as nice for secondary adrenal insufficiency, but these are the causes of adrenal crisis and primary adrenal insufficiency. And there's several papers saying the same thing. And you'll see here, gastroenteritis absolutely comes top of the list. And we see this massively in patients in clinical practice. So if patients have had vomiting or diarrhea and they can't keep their tablets down, they go into crisis really quickly, or it can precipitate a new case of Addison's, which is what happened actually in the first lady with bilateral adrenalectomy. Other infectious diseases, and we'd include COVID in this because viruses are obviously infectious diseases as well as bacteria. Um, and these really have are the, big, the big hitters in terms of what's causing a crisis. Emotional stress is really high here. I say in real life, I don't see that that often, but this group did, and it's a very good, um, well-respected group in Germany. And then down here, you see all these other ones like surgery pain, um, forgetting the meds. I look after a lot of adolescents, a lot of young people. So we do the sex, drugs, rock and roll chat. You know, they go to university, don't have a GP, don't have their meds. So all these sorts of practical issues about having medication. Uh, next, next slide, please. So this is just to really give you a bit of background around the stress element. And this is a paper from this year. So you can see here, normal day-to-day -day cortisol is around here, around 300. Um, and you can see that sepsis is the biggest increaser for, uh, and this really fits what we're seeing when people come in, reasons people come to crisis. Combat stress or severe trauma, so not, it's not really kind of cutting your finger, but we say, you know, maybe double up for that. But combat stress and elective surgery do have an effect, as you can see, also on cortisol levels. And then acute trauma is a bit more variable, and it depends about the extent of the trauma. But you can see here nicely that it does increase cortisol. 
Next slide, please. I won't go into this in detail, but it's just to say, if you look, if you're interested in the acute management, um, there's a paper that we did earlier this year, like a review. But it's just to say 100 milligrams IM or IV of hydrocortisone if you think of adrenal crisis and then treat you can't cause anyone damage so if you're ever seeing somebody in the community and you're thinking this might be what's going on just treat and I think it's in your in allergy kits as well um, you're not going to do any harm by a one-off injection of 100 milligrams but you may well save a life and then up to the emergency department and we can always unpick it at a later date so really don't worry about that next slide please um, I might skip that actually next slide please so in terms of sick day rules, so what we do, because we saw those cortisol levels are going up around surgery or intercurrent illness, and I think this is and particularly in COVID, when, when people weren't able to get to primary or secondary care for us in the first wave. If someone's ill, and there's loads of data I can, links I can share, we basically recommend for people on three to five milligrams of prednisolone or above and our endocrine patients to double their steroids. Um, and this is a fever, infection requiring antibiotics, surgical procedures or local under local anesthesia, we say double up your dose. If someone's on, only on twice a day hydrocortisone, we might, we will say take it three times a day and more detail is in the clinical medicine document. Sick day rule two, if you like, is severe intercurrent illness, so persistent vomiting, GI viral illnesses, prep for colonoscopy, acute trauma or surgery, then this, they need 100 milligrams IM or IV followed by an infusion for 24 hours or 50 milligrams IM or IV every six hours and this is hospital treatment but again you can save a life literally by giving in the community and, um, and ambulance um, are getting the same education around this as well and then what we do in the hospital is people are getting better we wean back down to orals but at a higher dose and as people recover we get them back on their usual dose next slide please in terms of COVID-19, we know that there's an acute stress response and we know this from patients with Addison's disease. I'm a trustee for the Addison's disease self-help group, which has been really great to hear a patient perspective. And those patients going into crisis with the normal sick day rules and literally were requiring double the normal sick day rules. So we, it's this expert consensus opinion and we published in the European Journal of Endocrinology. And this is just literally a summary. If someone's on hydrocortisone, we're saying to give when they're unwell with COVID, not just a positive test. So if they're unwell, you know, with the sweats, the fevers, I'm sure you've all seen COVID, it's 20 milligrams, six hourly. And then uh, if they're on prednisone, 10 milligrams, 12 hourly. And then they should get to hospital if they're, if they're not getting better and they get really really dry so lots of fluid next slide please so why does this matter next slide well it matters because our patients are dying and that's every 200th patient will die from adrenal crisis in the next 12 months this is from europe and the national learning reporting system which is the thing that came out in august of this year showed there were four deaths and four patients admitted to itu and 320 incidents of harm from emission of glucocorticoids and the patients were pituitary disease transplant and patients on exogenous steroids and uh, this is from the NHS safety searches and they said if you get this this is usually the tip of the iceberg and they, we all know there's stuff that's not reported in hospitals uh, next page please slide please and so as Lance was saying there's this joint work and Lawrence has been fantastic and Steve and, and those are people fantastic in giving us information next slide so this is the safety alert which I don't know if people have seen um, but it really basically it's gone out to the entire NHS and we have to all of us fulfill the actions um, next slide by May next year and the actions really are actually quite daunting so we all need to review our policies electronic prompts processes to make sure anybody at risk of adrenal insufficiency has a steroid card and uh, some education a one-off and that's over 12 months so this isn't a one-off now it's not like a prospective it's just when people come for their appointment everyone on steroids needs to be checked that they've got a card appropriately so for secondary care anyone coming or anyone doing procedures surgery trauma elective all this sort of thing we have to we've got loads of work going on at UCLH because you know and then in terms of hospitals and community pharmacists ensuring they've got information to give out the card next uh, slide please this is the guidance that I've alluded to if you wanted more information and surgical guidance. Next slide, please. And this is the card, which I am, um, it's like a second child to me. Um, it's, patients love it. I haven't got proper feedback yet in a way from healthcare professionals, but you can see here, there's some information on the top. You can see here, it's linked in with 999-111 call handler information with the symptoms. And if this is what patients say, then it should on their systems, triage it as a category two 
um, so they get the right management to hospital and there's the first steps of management here from the crisis underneath and the QR code links to the Society for Endocrinology pages so if yourselves have got this card it can take you to all the relevant links on management if you need further information on management or resources and that's the web page there as well and all these groups have been fantastically involved in trying to implement because of COVID community pharmacy are going to try handing out the card although I don't think that's happening yet but the next meeting is next week um, Royal College of GPs when there's some grey areas that I'm sure we'll discuss shortly to try and get some clear guidance around people on exogenous steroids and NHS Digital and NHS X are looking for ways to search in, in the GP systems, you know, to try and help a burden of finding the patients where it's relevant. And, and Lawrence may speak to this more, but I think he said in his practice there was about 1,600 on steroids, but probably only 100 actually needed the card. Um, so um, so there's various ways we're thinking of searching, like maybe three steroid prescriptions in eight months or three packs for COPD, prednisolone, and things like that. So there's an easy way to find out um, um, who might benefit from a card and education. Next slide, please. Um, I'll share these so we don't go on too much about this because you can read this at your own time because I think discussion is important but these are all the patients that are recommending having a steroid emergency card with the exogenous steroids actually 0.6 really I think is where we need to really give more detail. Uh, next slide please. Uh, yes, and this is what I was talking about. So what we're trying to do is work out a little bit more detail around these grey areas to try and help um, not just primary care, secondary care, anaesthetists, for example, so patients are safe around surgery. Uh, next slide, please. All right, I'm going to skip the F I'm going to leave the FAQs and maybe we should we cut to questions and discussion and I can talk about the FAQs if needed and I can share this information for people to read. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Helen. So the FAQs are really helpful, I think. And like you said, the intra-articular injections is a real biggie that we need to understand. But I think it would be good just to use Steve Williams as a senior clinical pharmacist working in primary care, just to try and reflect back. There's a lot of information there, but it's just trying to make it more manageable and practical for us to digest. No, it's great. But just for us to digest and how you think we can translate this, Steve, in primary care. Okay, but first, before I do that, I'm just going to ask one question that's been put in the chat box. And while I'm then speaking, if anybody else has got any clinical questions, if you can put them in the chat box. So, Helen, a question for you from Nicola Decker says, we tend to not think about cortisol levels, but are you suggesting that low sodium, which we do think about, may be a clue? So, in hospitals, if anyone comes in with a low sodium, we get a 9M cortisol. Now, proportionally, I, this is where I have to be slightly careful because I, you know, I don't see the same patient groups that you see in primary care. Drugs, I'm sure, is the top of the list. But if, if there is a low sodium and you're not sure, then cortisol is definitely, yes, think. I, I'm, so, yes, definitely, definitely think about it. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, this is, this is absolutely true. Only two weeks ago, one of the GPs here asked me about a patient who'd been refused theatre because they'd had low sodium. And we decided we did a 9 a.m. cortisol um, and we did, you know, serum and, and, um, and urine osmolality. But and they were all normal. And the endocrinologist said this lady is just drinking too much fluid. <laughs> but actually, we were thinking about it in relation yeah. to, to, to Addison. So, OK. So, yeah, there are no other questions at the minute. So I suppose, yeah, just to reflect back and to help perhaps people on the call. So. Five years ago, when I was actually doing the head of medication safety at NHS England, this reared its head as something that needed to be fixed. And it's taken five years to get here. And it was a hot potato then, and it's an even hotter potato now, particularly as we are now in the middle of COVID winter. And so I suppose I would say to any GPs or people from practices on the call is keep your counsel a little bit. This is very important, but we... We're going to get more information, are we not, Helen? Um, yeah. We're going to link this so that it's really good information. So we've got till May, and who knows, they may even extend it. But there are still some unknowns that, and now that I've worked in general practice for four and a half years, I'm absolutely clear that if we don't make it crystal clear mm. exactly what it is that we need to do, then we're not going to do it as well as we might. And then we'll cause anxiety and confusion amongst our patients and we'll get a load of unnecessary calls which we don't want in a COVID winter etc etc so I would just say uh, keep counsel um, we've still got plenty of time the, the key bit about who because I think we all accept that for people who are on regular oral mm -hmm. steroids we can do that quite easily 
And there's this talk about, you know, do we do that as back office? So can we send that information out electronically? Or do we need to, you know, speak to them? And I suspect we can do it with, with, a said, with a said letter. But all that difficult stuff, like people on inhaled or intranasal steroids, we're going to get some more clearer information, are we not, Helen, from both the society and from the specialist pharmacy services, which will then help practices to know who do they need to search for. So I've written it down as five things. We'll need to know how to find the patients once we've got clear information. Then how are we going to communicate that information to the patients? How are we going to allow them to ask questions if we don't do it face to face? And who does need to know and have available to them the steroids if they get into a sick day crisis because that's another whole difficult area if you're not on oral steroids but you might be in the group that might be at risk how do you manage that and i think that's where a lot of anxiety is and so i guess i would say keep counsel on that because i think we are going to get a lot more information the other thing i would just add from my point of view as a pharmacist is and having worked in hospital myself I've also seen those patients who use huge amounts of topical potent mm. steroids. I mean, the, intra, the, the uh, pruritus ani is important because you get fantastic absorption from the rectum. But I've actually seen it with somebody using huge amounts of clobetazone, you know, topically for, for eczema. So it does happen, but it is rare, obviously. And I suppose the other thing for all the callers is that, you know, I guess it's getting a slogan, isn't it? Because everyone has a slogan these days. Think AI in IA, I've written down. So because oh. intra-articulate intra injections, I mean, it's massive on your on your slide there. That was quite quite something. I mean, there's obviously been lots of discussion about intra-articular injections in COVID. So I think I would say always trying to get a good medication history when you're talking about anything, but this is particularly important. I'll shut up at that point. Do you have anything to That's add? That's great. So Helen, I think it's just back to you. I mean, I think for me, it's back to this thing about we've got, we've, it's almost to me as a GP was like we'd leapfrogged from normal to the emergency card, but we kind of missed out the just sick the day bit. rules in the middle bit, yeah. which is where sort of general practice is. So I think it's just that thing about we need to be smarter about how we educate the patients, but we don't want to make a lot of extra work for ourselves. Um, and I, yeah. I think it's just the last minute is just for Helen just to do a final thought, I think. So I think my final thought is, so I take two things home. I think even though I thought we were being quite multidisciplinary about this work, I think what is clear is that when you, the card fine, but the implementation, you have to be even more disciplinary. And I think what's been totally amazing and I'm really enjoying it, even though it's causing me, you know, I'm working the whole time on this literally. Um, is working with Lawrence, Steve, the MSOs yesterday in the Southwest. Now I've got a link into SPS because the only way we're going to do this properly is by all of us joining up from our perspectives. Mine is a different perspective. We absolutely have to get sick day rules education that's easy for patients in primary care. We need to be clearer. So I did try and get this in our guidance saying, what, look, what we're going to do about access suppression because there's no data. The sort of professor said, oh, but actually, we no data is no excuse we've got to give clear guidance so i think i've learned we've got to give really clear implementation guidance we have to be implementing as a multidisciplinary team and i think we're in a really good position now to do that um and really having you know working with lawrence has really helped and then i was a gpo working with the addison's disease as well um so i i feel really confident we can have a clear plan but absolutely i think we're not there yet so uh, and I, I suppose i don't know if apology is the right thing but you know acknowledging that it's probably causing quite a lot of anxiety. Um, so apologies if that is, because I know you guys, you know, in COVID, it's not, it's not easy. I had a Joanna, there's that, that one third poll. I think there's just the very last, there was one poll. Yeah, but should we just do the, let's just go, just jump to the last one if you can. And then that concludes that section. Um, yeah, there we go. So that was just an attempt to, we, we didn't get around to talking about um, rescue packets of steroids, but um if anybody's just got any view they want to put on that again it's something helpful for helen to take back to yeah. the um patient safety committee i'm happy for you to email me views and and or go through lawrence because i'm sure I'm, lawrence and steve will be in touch oh, i know we will um yeah so feedback is really helpful because then we can make sure we get it you know the next bit you know as good as possible yeah um, that's great well thank you helen because i know you're really busy so thank you and we'll, we'll let you head off Thank and, you very much. Um, Lovely to meet you all virtually. Bye, Karen. Okay, and thanks for all your slides. Okay. No. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Take a picture of you.
So, uh, right, now, straight on. Um, this was just a bit, the next bit, 30 minutes, is about a dementia update inspired by two things, really. There was a, a podcast that Wessex LMC did in March with Kim Badcock, uh, with, with Nicola Edwards, one of the directors of, of, of Wessex LMC, just talking about good practice and looking after dementia patients. And I kind of wanted to reflect after six months or more of COVID how that might look. So we're very nice to have Kim back to talk. But also we've got Nicola Decker. So her official, she's a GP, she's clinical chair for North Hampshire, Hampshire and Isle of Wight clinical commissioning groups. But the claim to fame in this part of the meeting is that she set up the whole dementia friendly practice scheme in Wessex, which ran between 2014 and 2017. And our practice was one that did it. And I think there was 150 surgeries in Wessex did this and it was nearly 3,000 staff both clinical and non-clinical working in general practice had um, dementia training which was just a phenomenal achievement so the plan is for Nicola just to reflect three years down the line and in the middle of a COVID pandemic, her thoughts about how we look after dementia patients for about 20 minutes. And then Kim, who's lead health and wellbeing coach in dementia for her PCN, will then put a few bits on in the context from her point of view. So I'll hand you over to Nicola now. Thank you, Lawrence, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you all again today. I um, It was really lovely talking to you when you mentioned getting our, uh, my thinking cap on again about the Dementia Friendly Practice Initiative because the world has changed so much. And it reminded me really that um, when we do have ideas and there are moments in time, it is just a moment in time, but then sometimes it's part of a big wave. So if you take the example of what we've just been talking about, steroid cards and the five year journey to get to this point, Dementia's been like that, and you will remember David Cameron in 2010 talking about raising our awareness. And now in 2020, we're in a completely different place. So this is just a real indulgence for it to get your thinking going as well. And, but it got my thinking going, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Do you want to do the next slide? So in 2014, at the, at the peak of the trying to raise the dementia awareness, we had this little idea that we could hardly be talking about having dementia-friendly bus drivers if we couldn't have a, a practice that was sensitive to the patient's needs. And we had a little acronym going and it was very um, simple in its concept, but the principles have remained in that most things generally need somebody who's a champion. And that was the first concept was get someone who could drive this. And that's often the way with the NHS is you get waves of enthusiasm and there was a three year effort in it. And I must give credit to the Academic Health Science Network who supported it. And now, uh, sort of six years on, your world has changed as much as mine and everyone else's, is we have got a very different problem on our hands and we have an explosion of frailty, loneliness and dementia and so much more. And so my reflections were, what does that mean for us as GPs now? Next slide. And looking back, um, I think there's been much progress made on the dementia front. And I'm sure you'd agree that we are in a different place now. People are more aware. Um, whilst it's still not a great diagnosis to get, there is a sense that it is everybody's business. And we are thinking about it more and trying to pick it up more uh, at an earlier stage. We're using the drugs quite widely, the memory services are fairly strong, and we're trying to protect memory. <laughs> and those of us who are still on the right side of, of an aging curve, we're trying to stay fit and eat well, I think. Um, and then of course the digital world has exploded, hasn't it? Uh, and especially this year. Next slide. So I was reflecting on what this year has meant for us all with COVID and the challenges of shielding inequalities and social isolation. And then was talking to a friend whose mother has dementia and they invested in something called a Comp Pro. And basically this was a gadget they could put up in her kitchen that they could prompt her, talk to her, send her pictures. And, and the, as, as with Zoom and as this meeting's happening now virtually, Though there are solutions that enable us to help people in a way that there weren't in 2014. And from a practice point of view, we still need the champions. We need the people who are passionate about something to drive our behavior change. 
And we still need to be aware of who has dementia so that the, aware, the coding matters. What has changed is that it's now cool to have access to your records and it, you can give proxy access to family. That helps, I think, keep us all in order because when relatives are checking in on their mum, it's, it's no, a brilliant way to keep us all in order. We're much more connected with carer in 20, carers in 2014. It was, um, it was a lot about have we got consent to talk to a spouse who's, who was the memory for someone. And that's changed a bit in that pragmatically it's, it's so right to bring in the very people who are keeping people independent. Um, it's cool to be collaborating and connecting now. So we're talking more to the voluntary sector, sector and we're trying to plan in line with the um, steroid crisis moment we've just talked about. We're trying to prevent crises. So planning is cool. And then came the care home DES, which has a section on it that talks about including the older people's mental health team for the um, multidisciplinary working for these patients. And as ever, safe prescribing, which is so important for people whose, whose mind doesn't function like it used to. Next slide. I thought this was quite a helpful thing. We've, we're more aware of frailty and we think many of you do probably use the Rockwood score and those simple pictures are useful to think about prescribing and de-prescribing. But when dementia patients come in, I think I used to struggle a bit to go, how does dementia fit with frailty? And the uh, Geriatric Society has brought this slide out, which is quite helpful to just remember that mild dementia is, is more in line with mild frailty, moderate more in line with the moderate frailty, and the same with severe dementia, where you really do need to de-prescribe um, and keep things simple and question the value of those drugs that may well be making them fall or feel sick. Next slide. Um, I had a quick peep, mostly because I fancied a bit of mental gym, um, at, at what the evidence was right now on, on prescribing. And it seems that the anti-dementia drugs has a strong evidence base for reducing mortality, um, but it doesn't work for everybody. You will have seen, like I have, people living with dementia for much longer and then dying from other causes. And the fears and worries about antipsychotic drugs is with us all, um, I'm sure you'd agree. What we're not sure of is the impact on um, treating the comorbidities in the context of a patient with dementia um, and how that affects their, their outcomes. Next slide. So looking to the future, what we are not clear on is what, what drugs will transform things. Will it in our lifetime, by the time we're 80, 90, will we see drugs that have, will dissolve the, the plaques that cause the dementia? Will the management of the behavior be any easier from a prescribing point of view? And will the lifestyle interventions that we've all talked about um, have made a difference? Will the uh, digital world have meant that we can have truly independent living with dementia intelligent homes if you've got Alexa's talking to you and all of that and I suppose in the post-COVID period where we've all been separated from each other will all of that replace the human contact that we so long for in a world that is so so socially isolated. Next slide. I think that was it. Um, there we are, um, Lawrence. I hope that's just a, 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 thoughtful, a thoughtful, um, reflection, but I know you've got your additional bits cause you did a little, uh, quick update on, on, um, that Dorset health record. Yeah, I wasn't particularly, I just was very much aware that you were saying about, rec you know, record sharing in Hampshire. And I think Hampshire seems a bit more ahead of the game than Dorset, but I think it's coming quite quickly next year in Dorset. Um, and I think this, you know, proxy access to records, obviously that is, more, I, I hadn't really thought about it to be honest so other GPs are probably more on it than me but uh, you know obviously it is a real thing with system one here certainly you can do you know range proxy access that, that's obviously important as you said so so they were good things for, for me and I like the concept with the frailty thing as well I think this frailty dementia de-prescribing things getting more and more important so that was really helpful and then if we turn to Kim I think the brief with Kim really was just to sort of link it in a bit more with our new social prescribers and, and our other other 
of actors we've got to support in, in the uh, community. So I'll hand over to Kim now. Right. Hello, good afternoon everybody and thank you very much for inviting me and uh, thank you to Nicola for sort of making us think about dementia again and for all the work she did in the past. So I have a dubious title of health and well-being coach specialising in dementia, which is not one I particularly relish, but I have worked for 30 plus years in general practice as both a practice nurse and a nurse practitioner. And in 2018, I led a quality improvement project called Mission Dementia, which was funded by Health Education England. And I think this, the work that we did really helped our practice respond to the needs of people living with dementia quite quickly during the pandemic. So if it's okay with you, I'll just briefly explain why I think that's the case. We started our project of Mission Dementia by looking at the current pathway. And so we can see that the patients are referred in by your good selves to the older people's mental health team. And at 12 weeks, they're referred back to the care of the GP, which can mean all sorts of things. Um, and really, apart from the annual review, nothing much happens in that big white space there until there's some sort of an event or a trigger or a crisis, which leads to a package of care or long term care. But the white space is filled very well by the voluntary agencies, but it's a bit ad hoc due to commissioning and retendering of services and communication between all of us in this particular part of the pathway doesn't seem to work very well. So the aim of Mission Dementia was really to embed dementia care into general practice so that we could lead and coordinate the complex care that's needed to manage it. The rationale was to improve the care of patients and families living with dementia, but also to recognise that um, general practice needs to be able to cope with the predicted exponential rise in the incidence of dementia in a sustainable and a transferable way. So if we could have the next slide, please. So um, we engage with stakeholders, both from health and social care, from the voluntary sectors and also our patients and our carers to see which parts of the pathway didn't work for them, where they fell between two, two rocks and a hard place really and everything went wrong. Um, so the first point we came up with was that we wanted to review people with mild cognitive, mild cognitive impairment annually to try and pick them up before a crisis occurred or they slipped under our radar. Um, and this was a really useful place to start future planning conversations. And then once them within, within at least a month of discharge to help them adjust to the diagnosis and to help them get on with their lives knowing who to turn to for a bit of help and support when they needed it. We needed to make the and the final bit of the journey was that if people went into hospital we tried to follow them up within a week of discharge looking around themes and trends around admissions and also what we could put in place to make sure that they didn't have to go back in again. Um, because our stakeholders involved people with dementia as well, it really made us focus on the fact that we just don't deal with their health issues. They also need to feel safe and valued by their community, their friends and the wider community. And to look at it another way, they didn't want to be seen as a list of health deficits. They wanted some health and well-being coaches and the social prescribers will sit. Um, and just looking at the slide, it's a little bit busy, but what we didn't expect to find that the memory cafe we set up at, at the behest of the patients was actually really pivotal. Um, so we saw people as soon as they'd been discharged from OPMH, did a review, invited them along to our memory cafe, where I was present from the surgery, we also had the voluntary agencies um, as well as the dementia advisors and care and support workers. So it was very social, they got some peer support, there was professional support on site. And by the time we went into lockdown, we had about 40 to 50 people turning up each month at the cafe. Um, so it was keeping your patients on the radar but out of surgery. And usually at the end of the memory cafe, I'd go back to surgery and had a list of things to do. So people might need some memory testing, uh, they might need their urine dipping, they might need to take a break. Because we were seeing these patients over time, they were relaxed and quite familiar with us. So we could see those subtle changes, pick them up when they were just 
um, going into a crisis or before that happened. Dip them in the bud before it became more complicated. So if we can go to the next slide, please. Okay, so what did we do during COVID? Well, because we knew our patients well, we were able to respond quite quickly. And we started with some welfare calls for all our patients with mild cognitive impairment and dementia. They were offered ongoing support by phone or via Zoom in our memory cafe. And we dealt with everything from a minor problem like I can't get any milk or to some quite big safeguarding problems that were raised as well. Um, the virtual memory cafe, this continues to run on a weekly basis and the group have found it really useful. They've discussed what to do when they were coming out of the first lockdown. They were all very, very anxious about going out and they were able to discuss as a group and take some advice from us as well on, on what to do and how to do it safely. And more recently, they've been talking about Christmas bubbles and how they're going to cope with that. But I think the COVID pandemic pandemic's been a tale of two halves, those that can Zoom and those that can't. So to support those that couldn't, we, um, the Memory Cafe is affiliated with DEEP, which is the Dementia Engagement and Empowerment Project. And they produce a really good upbeat newsletter. And they also had some funding for postage. So they sent us out their newsletters, uh, as well as envelopes and stamps. And we popped in our own newsletter as well. And that's been very well received by people that received it. Um, peer support, people met at the Memory Cafe but didn't have each other's telephone numbers. So we've been able to link them during lockdown. So they've been able to support each other, which has been great. And also once the weather was warmer and we could meet outside, we facilitated some um, meeting up for coffee outside. And that was really lovely. Lots of people turned up that had relatives in a care home and they were able to share their experiences and how they'd coped about not being able to visit their, their loved one. And then through collaborating with other services, we've been able to set up a further two initiatives. So in collaboration with Andover Mind and the Primary Care Network, we've started cognitive stimulation therapy groups. So it's the only validated psychological therapy for people with mild to moderate dementia, and it's recommended by NICE, and we didn't have it available in our locality before lockdown. So that's a real positive. It's been a challenge to do it on Zoom, but the patients have uh, received it well and we very much look forward to be moving to face-to-face -face sessions as soon as we safely can. And we also set up a virtual carers clinic and that was a collaboration between QA Hospital, the Primary Care Network and we were supported by Dementia UK. And this was just to increase the level of support carers were getting when um, all their other uh, support networks had disappeared. So it's a weekly Zoom meeting and the aim is to support carers, share education and information. And it's also been an opportunity to build relationships with these families between the hospital and the community, aiming to break down any actual or perceived communication barriers. We've enabled a young lady to spend uh, some time with her dad as he died. Uh, the ward was saying she couldn't go in, but we were able to get access for her. We've negotiated extra visits for other people and we've offered one-to-one -one support outside of the meeting and we really feel this has been a really valuable um, thing to do and we're going to continue that face to face as well as on Zoom really because often carers can't leave their, their loved ones to go to a meeting so actually Zoom has been quite useful for this. So what happens next? Um, Haven't Waterlooville Primary Care Network as of this week on our team of three health and wellbeing coaches uh, just dealing in dementia. We bring experience from health, the care industry, and also the charity sector. And along with our social prescribing colleagues, we hope to put into practice the ABC model of care. Uh, this is a tiered integrated approach to peri and post-diagnostic support for families living with dementia. And it's a paper that was written uh, and published in 2019 by Alistair Burns and Zena Aldridge and Karen Harrison-Denning at Dementia UK. So I'll try to avoid the use of the three tiers and instead use A, B and C. Um, so if we can imagine a triangle, at the base of the triangle we've got, I can see people with mild cognitive impairment and people going through the diagnostic process. And here as a team we can support the process, start future planning conversations um, and that will be the social prescribers and the health and wellbeing coaches working in that area. Uh, the middle part of the triangle, the bespoke section, 
that's post-diagnostic support, and that will be through the CST groups, our memory cafes. Those, and we'll be promoting the dementia service in the community and to raise awareness. Triangle with the, the complex care, and we see an admiral nurse or a specialist nurse sitting in that in the apex, managing the more complex care and the end of life care, as well as supporting colleagues. So I came into post in September. We've had a flying start. We've seen lots and lots of patients, and we've had some really uh, positive comments back. So if we can just go to the final slide, which is always nice to end on a, a cheerful note, and just lovely comments back from patients and GPs. And that's that's me. Thank you. Thank you very much. That that last line's great, actually, isn't it? To be able to, to feel confident to stop the antipsychotic medication. That's really good. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I might just hand it back to Nicola briefly, but I think for me, it's as GPs, it's, I mean, your PCN obviously is well evolved to, to manage this, but it just feels nice to have that facility to know that there's um, a way to navigate between social prescribers and more specialists in dementia and just know that we're getting that support in you know it's a bit like the dementia friendly practicing because the consequences are hopefully you get less crises and less unplanned emissions and all these things but it's probably good to just refer back to Nicola as we've got your brains on on screen yeah, I mean, I think for me, Lawrence, the challenge is prioritizing and there's so much going on for primary care networks. So many pressures, um, you know, antibiotic stewardship, um, serious mental illness, learning disabilities. And I, I sense that people are just at capacity. And so it's really difficult to know how to prioritize, but we must. And I think perhaps doing that with our patient groups and our partners and our wider teams and asking us just at the group to choose one or two or three priorities, do that well, grow confidence and then grow it. But this sits in a very busy context of primary care. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Well, I think, I mean, that's been really helpful, I think. And uh, it was good just to get that update from Kim, you know, six months down the line. And, and clearly you'd shaped things quite a lot, I think, since that podcast you did with the LMC back in March and it's really interesting how that's evolved so I'm pretty sure that's the um, all we need to do for now I think it's just about closing time anyway I don't think there's any other questions unless Joanna's got anything else that she needs to put in the mix um, no there's not not at all um, other than we will be sharing slides and a recording as I said and uh, I'll send everybody the link so they can refer back to that uh, once it's uploaded thank you but um, thank you ever so much to Nicola and Kim for taking part and giving that helpful update. Thank you for asking us and um, good luck everyone with all the pressures ahead and have a good Christmas. Thank you. Okay, we'll stop Bye. it there. Thanks, Thanks Kim. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.